Hi, Helena. Thank you so much for coming on to chat today. Hi, thanks for having me. Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? I grew up in a food desert in <laughs> rural North Carolina, which may be surprising because I live on a on an organic farm now. Um, but I, you know, I was raised in a small town. It was the 90s when organic produce hadn't quite made its way across America yet. And, you know, I had a, a mom who made $11 an hour and we ate a lot of processed food. I was mm -hmm. pretty much made of processed food until I was in my 20s and moved to California. Right. And then, you know, well, what, why did you move to California? Um, I, I knew that I needed to get out of North Carolina. I'm the, the daughter of a Norwegian immigrant. So mm -hmm. I'm this, you know, I'm this interesting mix, right, of uh, <laughs> Southern and Scandinavian. And I just, I knew there was a bigger world out there and I needed to go find it. And, and the South wasn't quite for me. So as soon as I graduated college, I kind of picked a place on a map and mm -hmm. moved to Cali with $40 and knew that I wanted to work on the internet. Wow. And, and yeah, you had a creative studio. So how did you move from, you know, having a creative studio to launching house your, your beverage uh, line? Yeah. So I have a very strange, but useful career <laughs> for building house. Uh, <laughs> I got my start doing PR for startups. So I got my degree in public relations and I liked the internet. So I, I wanted to go do PR for the internet. And that's what I ended up doing. I worked my way in the door, ended up running comms and biz dev for startups in my early 20s. And then very long story short, um, I saw an opportunity to uh, to do branding work in Silicon Valley. My my I've been a creative since I was a small kid, and um, I could tell that Silicon Valley was starting to shift from kind of an engineering culture to a more designy, you know, creative culture. And long story short, I ended up building a creative studio that served a bunch of different startups and a bunch of the big guys too, like Facebook and Google and Twitter and Uber and Airbnb. It was a very, uh, it was a really good run. Like I, my my twenties were great for my career, um, but then I I ended up marrying a, a booze guy. And we joke that house exists because a techie married a booze guy. <laughs> and, you know, how did you launch this, this line of Amaro's with, with all these different kind of botanicals? Like what was the, and you know, what was your husband doing in booze that kind of made this the right fit for you guys? Yeah. So, you know, when I moved up here, I, I started immersing myself in, in the alcohol industry because it was interesting to me. I actually, you know, worked in bars for many years from like 18 to 22. And, um, and so I, I knew that side of alcohol, but I didn't know the industry side. And really quickly, I noticed that it seemed to be a bit behind. Um, you know, it hadn't embraced the internet. I learned that, that they hadn't because it's actually almost impossible to. There's this three-tier mm -hmm. system. It's been around since prohibition. And and if you make alcohol, you've got to go through it. You've got to go through a distributor who ends mm -hmm. up selling you to retailers and restaurants. And, um, and that's what my husband was doing when I met him. He was making beautiful wine and beautiful aperitifs. He was, you know, farming on his, uh, on his family's farm. And, and he was doing everything right by the traditional industry standards. Like he got the cool kid mm -hmm. distributor. He got in all the best bars mm -hmm. and restaurants in America. Um, but when you have to go through that many gatekeepers, you kind of lose control over your product and how it right. lives in the world. So these aperitifs that he made to be drank on the rocks like they are in Europe, 
they ended up just being a sprinkle in like a super boozy 10 ingredient cocktail. So, you know, his product wasn't being served in the right way. Customers had no idea who he was. They didn't even know they were drinking it. And, and it just, to me, it seemed like, man, this industry really isn't kind to independent makers. Like they really don't have any control over their, their product. And it's almost impossible to get national distribution unless you're owned by a corporation who has that leverage to get you those placements. And at the same time, I was going through a drinking dilemma that you might be able to relate to, which is mm-hmm. just part of being a, you know, like a hustler and a social person and, um, you're drinking all the time. Like, you know, there are definitely weeks when, when I'm drinking every day, whether it's a conference or a business dinner or catching up with friends or just hanging out with Woody, like, um, alcohol is a big part of my life and most of my friends' lives. And it was really starting to get to us, like the downsides, you know, like the hangovers were getting worse and we were having to like work off the calories and our sleep was suffering and our joints were hurting. And I couldn't help but think like, why is there not a better way to drink? Like, why is this thing that we do really often causing us so much pain? And, you know, so I started looking into it. I I couldn't help myself. I wanted to see like, what's going on with booze? Like what's going on with my generation? Um, I have a hunch that we're looking for something better because I've seen it happen in every other industry, right? Like I worked in Silicon Valley for 10 years. I saw all of these other industries have to shift to meet the higher standards of millennials who really care about quality and transparency and authenticity. And looking at alcohol, you know, I saw the opposite. I saw like 96% of liquors owned by a corporation and Mm -hmm. that pretty much all like, you know, in North Carolina where I came from, we only had access to corporate products. Mm -hmm. And if you're an indie brand, you're kind of stuck with your local market. Maybe you're in a cool kid bottle shop or you have to like, you know, just have people visit your winery or distillery. And all of this was, was kind of blowing my mind. And I had a hunch that aperitifs were what our generation was maybe looking for. Like they checked all the boxes, you know, they were like, they were more sessionable. They, they were lower in alcohol. So you wouldn't accidentally get wasted and super hungover. And they are like the original better for you alcohol. They were made for medicinal purposes centuries ago. They're botanical. They're sophisticated. They're really popular in the rest of the world, but not in America. Like there were just all these signals like, man, this, this might be what this generation's looking for. And I talked to my husband about it and I was like, man, I wish we could build, you know, what I see in other industries. I wish we could go build the glossier of alcohol and just sell to the drinker. Um, But it was my understanding that you can't, you know, if you're liquor, you have to go through three tier. And that's when my husband said, oh, actually, uh, never thought about this, but the kind of aperitifs that we make, you can go direct to consumer. We can just sell it online. And I was like, dude, we got to go sell this online. Like we got to go, we got to go build the alcohol company of the future. And we, you know, for us, it wasn't just about aperitifs, right? It was about like building a company that put the drinker first instead of the distributor or the bartender or like the corporate buyer. Like, let's go make the booze that this generation wants. And like, let's go check all the boxes of what they're looking for from like the quality, the authenticity, the transparency, make it easy to buy, deliver it to their door, like give them a direct line to the makers, like just do it totally differently than what's out there and see what happens. And that was, we had the idea 
in 2018, we had a three month old baby. So it certainly wasn't good timing, (laughs) but we launched a year later and now we're a year and a half old and it's going really well. Right, right, right. And how did you kind of decide, because you are going direct to consumer, you're not focused on being in the back bar at like the cool places, even though that now that is irrelevant. Um, but, you know, how are you marketing to folks? You know, I've seen I've seen the bottles on like every cool person's bar cart that I follow on Instagram. <laughs> I think our secret was we we were the first brand to just go after the drinker, right? Mm-hmm. Like we in the beginning, we just we didn't go after any of the traditional folks. We didn't even reach out to liquor writers or like traditional mm-hmm. food and beverage writers. Like we were focused on the drinker and, and that really worked out for us because I think the drinker has kind of felt neglected for a long time and they didn't even know it. So when they saw, you know, our story or why we launched and, you know, kind of the, the problem that we were passionate about solving, they were like, whoa. I, I have this problem. Like I feel terrible, you know, after I drink and I'm not satisfied with the options that I have. And, and in the beginning, you know, we didn't have any money to put into marketing. So we relied entirely on word of mouth. And I think the, the strategy that we had in the beginning was let's make this the best thing that people have ever had. And Mm -hmm. not just the liquid, like my husband makes amazing booze. Like I wasn't worried about that, but it was everything. Like, let's make the packaging so beautiful that they're proud to share it on their mantle. Like, let's make the unboxing experience feel really tailored and and premium. Let's ship it so fast that they're amazed at how quickly it arrives. Like, let's do everything just miles and miles beyond what the industry standard is so that people are so impressed that they tell all their friends. And all of our growth in the beginning was through word of mouth. Right. And, you know, I am from New York and and had been living and writing there for a long time. And there is such a a strong um, sense of, of, you know, New York alcohol, like from craft beer to to wine, to distilled spirits. And I that really like opened my mind to all these issues in alcohol and how we think of it and how, you know, it's so tied to these corporate brands. And and these are all things that we wouldn't accept in food, but that we accept wholeheartedly in alcohol. But I, I mean, I think maybe it's changing a little bit now that, you know, craft beer is obviously huge. That's already had its moment, but natural wine as well is having its moment. But for you in, in, aperitifs in spirits, that time hasn't come yet. So like, what are some of the issues that you're really trying to um, make your buyers um, or your potential consumers aware of um, that makes you different from those, those brands? Yeah, I think a lot of people just didn't realize that it could be better. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think I think there was this assumption that like, oh, it's alcohol, like whatever, it's a vice, like I'll take what I can get. It's going to be it's going to make me feel bad. It's just part of the package. And I and I think there is this assumption that like your hung, your hangover is coming exclusively from the alcohol. And it's mm-hmm. like, oh man, if people only knew that it's coming from so many other things too. It's like all of these kind of Frankenstein-y additives. It's it's like the difference between eating McDonald's and eating a farm-to-table meal. You know, mm. it's like yeah, you feel worse when you eat McDonald's because <laughs> it's made differently, and it's the same for alcohol. So I think I think there's just been no conversation around it. 
right. until recently. And, and I think that's for a reason. Like it's, it's industry knowledge, like all the insiders know, but, but I think there's been consequences to speaking out or at least perceived consequences because in alcohol, you do traditionally, you depend on the big guys, you depend on the mm -hmm. distributors, you know, your only chance at, at selling your company would be to one of these big corporations. And you don't want to be the whistleblower. Like you don't mm -hmm. want to be the person to call out an entire industry because you're going to get blacklisted. And for us, I think we have a little bit of that extra freedom because we aren't owned by a corporation and we don't plan on being owned by a corporation and we don't have to depend on distributors. So we have a little bit more freedom uh, to, to spread these messages. Mm -hmm. And, and I also think it's timing, right? It's like right. there are movements that where you can just sense that there's a swell, a groundswell happening and that people are kind of ready to talk about this and food really paved the way mm -hmm. um, for booze. I think just the transition from conventional to the growth of, of organic and farm to table eating. So I think people are finally ready to even receive this message. Right. And, <laughs> um, and so we're, you know, we're happy to be the people to talk about it. I think there's a nuance, like we don't want to make people feel bad for right. their other choices, right? Like Woody and I, we enjoy plenty of, you know, conventional snacks or beverages from time to time. It's more just about like, we want to just arm people with the information so that mm -hmm. they know how to make an informed buying decision. And if they are buying something conventional, at least they know. And, and they know how to tell the difference between something that's made by a corporation and made by someone independent, because it's almost impossible to tell when you're just right. looking at the bottle. No, and it's so fascinating because, you know, as I said, like I've been kind of following how this shift has been happening in alcohol, but it is such a slow shift and it is, you know, such a difficult one to discuss because it's true. People do think of alcohol as a vice and as something that will inevitably make them feel bad and as something that, you know, comes from some faceless corporation, you know, it's, you know, gin is beef eater and whiskey is Jameson and rum is Bacardi and, and people don't think about it that much beyond that. But uh, in launching knowyouralcohol.com, you kind of are calling for that more transparency. So what are some other brands that you can suggest that are also kind of working in a sustainable way and in trying to kind of change the public uh, perception of alcohol? Oh man, there are so many. Yeah. Like that's another thing that that people don't realize. You know, we're not the only brand on earth that's that's, you know, ethical. There are so many brands that came before us that are doing it right. You know, ethical winemakers, ethical distillers, they just don't get any national play because they can't get national distribution. So mm -hmm. you can really only find them at like cool kid bottle shops in Brooklyn or LA or sometimes you literally have to go to the winery or distillery to right. try them. It's like, it's such a problem, you know, with distribution. It's really, it boils down to that. But, you know, if you go to know your alcohol, we have a full list that you can start with. There are plenty more, but you know, it's, it's like empirical or fourth Ave spirits in New York. I'm sure you know them. <laughs> Good them, vodka, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Hanson and Sonoma County, um, amazing winemakers like Martha Stoneman or mountain tides. Like there's a lot happening. Um, mm -hmm. but you know, it's, it's just hard to find them. And right. this is just the starting point. Right. Well, what are some of the challenges that smaller producers face in, in getting out there? Is it just distribution or, you know, is there 
a problem in media that, you know, not communicating these sorts of ideas or not communicating that, you know, this is happening and that this is a new movement um, in alcohol. Yeah, I think it, I mean, it's really, it's deep and systemic, right? Mm -hmm. Like um, distribution is always going to be a problem. Like I think the reason why we're still the only DTC brand in the space and have no real competition in that way is because it's so hard and so expensive to become nationally compliant. And that's even if you are like a wine or a vermouth and you can go national in the first place, it's just prohibitively difficult. And so you do have to rely on distributors to make it easy, but distributors don't like, they're not going to prioritize indie brands over corporations with millions of dollars to put into marketing. You know, it's just, it's like having that de-risks it for a distributor. So corporations and distributors are always going to be working together to de-risk their own opportunities. And, and I think the future is, really in the internet starting to open up, like regulations are starting slowly, but surely to open up. COVID helped so much with that. But I think it's also on the drinker to go seek better brands. Um, It really is. It's as much on the maker as it is on the drinker to go and pursue, you know, well-made indie makers as much as they're pursuing the really convenient corporate brands, um, it is going to take so, I mean, it's really just beginning. And I don't think that there's any clear solution yet, but a big part of it is going to be on the drinker to decide that they're going to change their buying habits and move their money from corporations to indies. Right. I mean, it's so difficult because these, these people have so much money. (laughs) Like, I mean, I'm here in San Juan and, you know, Bacardi, really owns the rum space, but they have, you know, zero transparency around their sourcing, around, you know, where this molasses is coming from and how those workers are being compensated and then how it's being processed. And, you know, and it's just really difficult to make changes there because they are just so big and so powerful and so deeply associated with the category. Um, And I've written before about, you know, how labeling laws are an issue because you know you can have something like good vodka that tells you on the label what it's made from and like when and where but you know if you wanted to make that a big policy change i think there would be a lot of blowback from very powerful people but do you think that there there are changes that could be made to labeling laws that would um you know make the category better and and better educate the consumer oh yeah i mean i think change is gonna come but it's gonna take the drinker, again, you know, helping push those changes. Like Drizzly was just Mm -hmm. bought by Uber this morning for $1.1 billion, which is a steal in my opinion, because they've totally put the power into the buyer, right? Like now the buyer, instead of going to the grocery store and being like, okay, I only have these choices to choose from, they're able to look at every retailer, you know, in their metro area, and they're able to make a more informed choice about what they buy. And they're able to read more about the brands because they're on the internet instead of in the store. And it's really putting more power into the buyer, which is really Mm -hmm. exciting. And, you know, brands like us who launched with the idea that we were going to make something that had the drinker in mind and, you know, we're growing faster than pretty much any alcohol brand ever. uh, You know, I think we're, we're showing slowly but surely corporations that, it is important. And mm-hmm. if 
companies like us and companies like Drizzly continue to take market share from the big guys, it's going to show them that they have to change. And it's going to be a process, but it's going to, I really think it's going to take outsiders like House and like Drizzly to go and, and just show that if you put the customer first, you can win. Like you can actually take meaningful market share. And that is what is going to force these guys to change. Right. And for you, is drinking a political act? Oh, man, it's a, it's all about accessibility. You mm-hmm. know, it goes back to where I grew up in North Carolina and and not having access to good food and certainly not good alcohol. And and even still, like if you go to the ABC store where my mom lives, there's no indie brands in that mm-hmm. ABC store. It's 100 percent owned by corporations. And so one of my biggest motivators for building house is to make a brand that has indie values, but is accessible to people outside of cool kid bottle shops in Brooklyn and Los Angeles. Like that's accessible to people in North Carolina or anywhere in America. And, and that, I mean, it's a really profound shift that if we can, if we can be a pioneer of that, like that's real impact and, it's really, it's really exciting to be a part of. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Absolutely. Thanks for chatting.